This is the Get A Life Podcast, X-Cult Conversations. Episode 82 with Drew Wiggins is an excellent podcast to watch before this episode as it gives a myriad of context to the Aberdeen material discussed here. Hi everyone, welcome back to Get A Life Podcast, X-Cult Conversations. Today I'm here with Bradley McCallum and we are going to go through the evidence of Aberdeen so that everybody has just one podcast to come to with the relevant information regarding Aberdeen. After multiple requests from those inside the PBCC due to current ministry on Aberdeen, we created this podcast with you in mind, knowing you all have access to what is being referred to here. For those that have left the PBCC and would like the information to ministry or readings referred to in this podcast that are not attached in the description below, please contact us at info.getalife at proton.me. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Bradley, and you can give the viewers just an overview of what we're going to do today. Yep, sounds good. Um, So I think the the interesting thing is about the Aberdeen issue. I mean, clearly something really big happened in 1970. Um, Brethren Inside still refer to it a lot. Uh, still talk about it. It's still an object of a lot of discussion. Rather than outside, the same, actually. For a lot of families and a lot of people, it remains a real kind of flame point or touch point that's really, really important. And there's a ton of information floating around in the blogosphere, the internet, everything about what went on. And I and actually, it's not actually that complicated. Um, there's probably 10 or 15 items that give a pretty clear picture of what went down. And then, you know, once everyone, once someone reads through all of that or listens to it, uh, they can make their own decisions. So I think the one thing I would like to just touch on before I get started um, is, is that there might be some... So my grandfather was Stanley McCallum, uh, who was one of the guys who actually went into the bedroom in the house at Aberdeen. And um, following all of that, there were charges made that he was homosexual, that he may have been a pedophile. I really don't know. I, I think that he probably was not looking at the evidence. Maybe he was. I, I, I don't know. But, you know, the brethren uh, at the time that were loyal to JT Jr., took that to the police. The police threw it out. In fact, my father, who was loyal to JT Jr., um, was told by the police that if he pursued it, he would need to get a lawyer because they would charge him with laying false charges. So I just want to put that aside. I never knew my grandfather. I'm not on some vent, some sort of mission to um, say he was right or, or not. But this, the Aberdeen thing was just super important to me because t- in, in understanding and trying to delve into it and understand what happened, because to me it represented a sharp move in the trajectory of the, the of the PBCC as it is now known today, or the EBs as it was then, it moved a sh- into a sharp departure from what had been into this concept of being a universal leader that could not be challenged, that didn't matter what he did, it was okay. And that, to me, was really important. So I just wanted to make that um, comment before we get started. 
So if we look at, at the Aberdeen situation, so as a lot of people know, um, the JT Jr. thing, through the 60s, he had really solidified kind of a, a rock-solid control over the Brethren um, as 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 they were known. Um, there were various challenges to his authority and his ministry that had been dealt with, and that he he was, by the late 60s, unequivocally in charge. He was unequivocally the leader that had pretty much complete and unequivocal control over the movement. Um, and this moves us then towards, he's aging now, he's... You know, he's in his late 60s, he's approaching 70, and then he moves into 1970. And I think important to understanding the context of what happened in July in Aberdeen is several groups of meetings immediately preceding that. Yeah, so there's these kind of, I think that's important in understanding the, the milieu or the context in which the meeting at Aber the, the whole weekend at Aberdeen arose is several meetings in the weeks, the two weeks prior. There are two meetings, one in, in Croydon on the 14th of July, and there's one in Ealing. I think it might have also been on the 14th or maybe the day after the 15th. And then there is a set of three-day meetings in uh, Preston on the 17th through the 19th. And then there's some meetings in Newcastle on the 21st. And these meetings mark a really, probably the most pronounced um, change in the way JT Jr. was ministering, where it was a really sharp departure from the past. There was a lot of uh, language that a lot of people even today would consider to be unsuitable language for a church meeting. Um, there were topics that were being discussed that weren't really appropriate. Um, there was just a lot of what would have been at least based on the 150 years of Brethren history and then most contemporary Christian understanding to be not very um, Christian, but you know th those are all in print. Um, those are in the ministry of J.T. Jr. Anyone who has the ministry of J.T. Jr. can look them up and read them um, and make their own, form their own judgment on that. But moving out of that, then we come to the weekend of the 24th through the 26th in Aberdeen, um, which was a set of three-day meetings. There was uh, a lot of brethren in the U.K. at the time from other countries, um, there were other meetings going on in other places, and J.T. Jr. is holding three-day meetings in Aberdeen. So Saturday is really when what, what's referred to as Aberdeen, where this stuff all comes to a head, is Aberdeen, July 25th, 1970. And there are two things. One is his behavior in the house where he was staying um, in Aberdeen, and also his behavior in the meetings. And those, you know, he was not charged with fornication or adultery or things like that, but he was, people said he was behaving unseemly. 
and in in a way that could be could be viewed as corrupt that was not suitable in both in the meetings and in the house
that with your bowels. <laughs> you never had it so good. I think if you look at these things, if you read the meetings that had happened preceding it in Croydon and in uh, Ealing and Preston and Newcastle, and then you move on and then you listen to this kind of climax of this whole thing, which is the um, meeting in Aberdeen on the Saturday afternoon, um, it's, it's is what it is. You know, listen to it. A lot of people think that it sounds like someone who's drunk. Um, there's hilarity. There's laughing. There's stomping on the you know the floors. There's banging. There's shouting. There's all sorts of of stuff that's just highly unusual. And for most for for most of the ensuing fifty years, the brethren have not let anyone listen to this insofar as they could. But people that um felt that people should know shared shared the recording and now it is out in the public domain and i think it's really important if you have questions or you have um you're wondering about Aberdeen, listen to that saturday afternoon reading and i'll attach and, a link to it in the description of this podcast for those that might not have access to it and i'll put it on a platform that you or can have access to it yeah and then make your own form your own decision um, say is this is this you know if if your bent or your inclination is is that this is the recovery of the truth that is God's distinctive movements through the personification of the Spirit here on Earth in the Church, um, and listen to that and say yeah that's definitely what that is you know then that, that's your decision or listen to it and say no no there was something. That doesn't sound like that, you know. I mean, it, but it's but it's but it's clear. 
And I think it's important to listen to it because if there's nothing to hide and there's no issues, then then listen to it. Listen to the reading on Saturday afternoon. So then Saturday evening after the meeting, he goes back, Mr. Taylor goes back to the house he was staying in, which was the house of James Alec Gardner, brother and his wife in Aberdeen. Um, there was a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Kerr, and they had uh, been around, um, kind of coming and going from the Mr. Gardner's house and having to do with Mr. Taylor, particularly Mrs. Kerr. But you'll see in the letters all that laid out. But what sort of brought things to kind of a crisis point was is that Mrs. Kerr was spending a lot of time with Mr. Taylor in his bedroom um, alone and with Mr. Kerr's knowledge. And on Saturday evening after the reading, um, after the meeting, Mrs. Kerr and Mr. Taylor went into the bedroom together again. And um, Mr. Gardner and my grandfather, Stanley McCallum, knocked on the door and then went into the room. And they were in bed together undressed. Um, Mrs. Kerr was naked, and I think Mr. Taylor had on a pajama top. Uh, they had some conversation between them all about saying that this wasn't suitable on the part of Mr. Gardner, my grandfather, and Mr. Taylor telling them they were, I don't know the language he used exactly, but I think he told them that they were corrupt and evil and should get out. But then there was an exchange that was witnessed to by not only Mr. Gardner and my grandfather, but someone else who was standing there, I can't remember their name, where he, he seemed quite disturbed and um, said, I suppose you'll tell my wife. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing. Um, but in any event, the, the way the evening played out was uh, Mr. Gardner told, who, whose house it was, told Mrs. Kerr that she needed to leave and then told Mr. and Mrs. Kerr that they needed to actually physically leave the house. So first he told her to leave the room, then he told them to leave the house. They called a doctor and they called James III and tried to get support and Mr. Taylor eventually left in the early hours of Sunday morning. So with all of that in mind, um, there's a series of letters that I think are really important to lay out the, the, the versions of what happened, which is interesting to note that the versions of what happened on the folks who said Mr. Taylor was doing stuff that he shouldn't have been doing really don't change over time. Mr. Taylor initially denies it all, says it didn't happen, says he wasn't in bed with another man's wife, says these different things. But eventually, as is witnessed to later on, um, acknowledges it. So on this this first letter, this is a letter written by um, James Alec Gardner and signed onto by my grandfather. And these were two men who were, I mean, James Alec Gardner was actually the guy who owned the house where this all went down. And my grandfather was the guy who was there. And 
This was written only a few days after Aberdeen. Um, it's actually dated the 29th of July. I think all this stuff happened on the 25th. So this is right away. So this is probably, this is the most, um, the closest to the events personal account of what happened. And uh, it was witnessed, they, they supported, corroborated each other's views on what happened. And I think it's a really important document, um, very deferential to Mr. Taylor, feeling very, very um, sorrowful or upset about what happened. And it's, it's, it's an interesting read. There's brethren at the time that were in the whole sort of months following Aberdeen in 1970, brethren were warned not to read this, to burn it, to destroy it, uh, and yeah, to to not read it on pain of being withdrawn from. Actually, um, so yeah, that says what <laughs> I think that speaks for itself about it. So, for um, our listeners who are listening to this and not watching this, so we'll just read this. Out, we'll read this out quick for you. It's um, very um, quite yeah. It's quite good. Beloved brother, re-phone call. Our brother, Mr. Taylor, arrived on Thursday morning, July 23rd. The brethren we had arranged to stay in the house were Dr. and Mrs. R. Gardner of Perth, Mr. and Mrs. J. Gray of Edinburgh, Mr. and Mrs. E. Stedman of Falkirk, and Miss Anne Gibb of Falkirk. All these brethren were here by 8.30 p.m. Mr. and Mrs. R.A.C. Kerr, who were to stay at Lawrence Kirk, called about 9.30 p.m. on their way from the airport to Lawrence Kirk. Immediately, JT Jr. saw them. He said, these are my friends and insisted they stay in my house. That night, we witnessed Mr. Kerr led his wife through to Mr. Taylor's bedroom with a dressing gown on and barefooted. Then Mr. Kerr returned to his own bedroom alone. My wife witnessed, witnessed Mrs. Kerr coming out of Mr. Taylor's bedroom around about 6 a.m. on Friday morning. Mrs. Kerr spent some time during the intervals in Mr. Taylor's bedroom. On Friday, we were almost an hour late for the afternoon meetings. I knocked on Mr. T's bedroom door, but got no response. After about another 20 minutes, Mrs. Kerr came out saying she had to wait until she was released. After about a further half hour, Mr. Taylor came out. Mrs. Kerr said she had to be with Mr. Taylor to attend to his feet and head. On Friday night, Mr. Kerr again led his wife through to JT's bedroom about 11 p.m. and again returned alone to his own bedroom and left his wife in Mr. Taylor's room. To get from Mr. Taylor's bedroom to his own bedroom, he had to come through the kitchen, dining room, and living room. We had no evidence as to when Mrs. Kerr came out of Mr. Taylor's bedroom on Saturday morning. At the break on Saturday, I went through to Mr. Taylor's room with a preparation for his lips, which he had asked for, after which we barricaded the door between the Kerr's quarters and the living room to prevent Mrs. Kerr from having access to JT's room because we were disturbed and unhappy as to the length of time they, they were spending together. We had provided every comfort and care for JT so that he was being well looked after by us in the house. Mr. and Mrs. Kerr tried to break down the door so that she could reach JT's bedroom. In the process, a large glass panel at the door entrance was cracked. When our other visitors left for the meeting, Mrs. Kerr managed to slip through to Mr. T's bedroom, staying there alone with him for some time so that we were again late for the afternoon meetings. When she came out of the room, she, she said she had been told to tell me I was an SOB and a bastard. On the way to the meeting, I asked if I would if it would be all right for 
SBC and Jim Levy and his wife to come up for a meal with us after the meeting. He agreed to this. The afternoon session was short and we were home early. Mr. Taylor went straight to his room and Mrs. Kerr followed him through a short time afterwards. S. McCallum and the Loveys arrived. We sat around talking and had a meal. JT and Mrs. Kerr did not put in an appearance and I felt I had to find out what was happening in my house. I went through to JT's bedroom and found Mrs. Kerr undressed and in bed with JT. He had on his pajama top, which was open down the front. I remonstrated with Mr. Kerr and asked him to get his wife out of there and then asked S. McSee to come back to the bedroom with me and witness the situation. Mr. S. McSee and I both witnessed to the fact that JT and Mrs. Kerr were in bed undressed together. S. McSee asked JT if this was right and he said yes. S. McSee pointed out that it was unsuitable, uncomely and not morally right. JT said to S. McSee, the devil is in you. I have to get him out. You have been wrong all your life. S. McSee said, what would Renee say? His reply was, I suppose you will tell her. S. McSee and the lobbies then went away. Kerr was finally con consenting to what his wife had done, and I decided that to protect my house, I had to put the Kerrs out. JT insisted he was going out with them and said, she is my woman. We prevented him from leaving with the Kerrs. This was because we wanted to protect him. S. McSee, Jim Levy, and Dr. Bob Gardner, Gardner had gone to Glasgow to get James Third off the 1.20 a.m. flight. JT became very difficult calling us bastards and son of a bitch and to all go to hell. We had to send for Dr. Bill Thompson, who had been attending to him for the last three, four weeks. JT became very quiet when Dr. Thompson arrived and was given an injection and tablets. Dr. Thompson said that medically he was a sick man, but the moral side is a matter for the priests. One, I feel all could have been covered if JT had admitted the wrongness of having another man's wife in bed with him, both being undressed. Two, if it had been admitted that he was a sick man, the attempt to justify the bedroom situation has made it imperative to disclose the full facts. The attempt to have me put out by saying to Edward Ross, a local brother who phoned JT yesterday, that my house was leprous and the action against Esmixi at Detroit before he even arrived home is an attempt to get the witnesses out of the way. Some brethren take the view that, that this is Abishag and David forgetting mm -hmm. Ephesians 5 verse 25 and other scriptures, yours and our Lord, and then it's signed James Gardner and Stanley McCallum. Yeah, I think that kind of says a lot um, about the situation. I mean, it, it pretty lays it out pretty clearly. And interestingly, Mr. Taylor initially denied what happened. He said he was not in bed with another man's wife. Um and a, a variety of other things. In fact, I think the next letter that we have is his letter. So that letter was written on July 29th or 30th. Um, and then he gets home to New York and he takes a reading in New York, um, which is in volume 148. If you have the volumes of J.T. Jr., you can read it. Is a meeting on on August five. It's more kind of more of the same sort of Aberdeen and Preston and Newcastle type stuff, but then he writes a letter on August seven uh, to a Miss Elizabeth Hindle, in which he uh, he attempts to sort of defend himself and refute a lot of the stuff that's going on. Um, and it's just, you know, it's it's kind of bullying. It's kind of 
it's kind of full of bluster. Um, it doesn't, it, it corroborates actually a number of the facts. I mean, he, you know, he says, thank you for years of July 22nd. I do not remember you, but I'm thankful you enjoyed the meetings at Aberdeen. The last time I was there, I met the press, which was interesting. This time I met criminals. But then he says a, a whole series of things of his memory of the situation, which actually don't corroborate with the facts. I mean, some things do and some things don't. Don't. He says he arrived on Thursday night by charter flight with Mr. and Mrs. Alan Kerr. I was brought to AJ's house, which is Alec Gardner, and was made very comfortable. Um, he didn't actually arrive in Aberdeen with the Kerrs. The Kerrs arrived separately, um, so that's an odd point. He said, Friday meeting. Friday the meeting started at 8 a.m. At the foot of my chair in the meeting was a glass of mixed whiskey. He goes on to speak about the meetings. Um, and then he says, you know, Mr. Alan Kerr, A.K., Mr. Alan Kerr had said to me that his wife wanted to wash my feet, to which I agreed. He also suggested she might assist me after the meeting each day in rubbing my head and massage. He brought her in that night. They had to go through most of the rooms of the house to get to my rooms. There are many helpers besides the host and hostess who saw them come to my room. The second night was the same, only there came a knock on the door, and in came the host with S. McSee or Stanley McCallum and J. Gray or Jim Gray. So that was on Saturday night. So that other than the fact that he had not arrived with the Kurs, he did not travel with the Kurs there, the other points broadly corroborate. Um, he, Mr. Taylor says, S. McSee says, what's that? Pointing to the sister, which he calls a nurse, lying on the bed. He, Stanley McCallum, says corruption. He points to some clothes on the floor and again says corruption. The host, Mr. Gardner, agrees. I said to Stanley McCallum, you're a bastard a liar. Alan Kerr had also come in, and he told S. McSee that he was charging his wife with corruption, and he, Mr. Kerr, said she was a pure woman. So if you can imagine the picture, so Mr. Taylor and Mrs. Kerr are lying in bed undressed, and in the room now is Mr. Kerr, Madeline, Mrs. Kerr's husband, S. McSee, Stanley McCallum, uh, James Alec Gardner, the homeowner, and Mr. Gray. So there's four, see, I'm losing track of the count, three guys plus Mr. Kerr plus Mr. Taylor. So there's five people in the room while this is all going on. They all left, and then Mr. Taylor goes on. They all left, and Alan Kerr and his wife went out expecting me to follow through to get a charter flight. On the way out, Mrs. Kerr was called a demon and they were told they could sit on the street all night. Alan Kerr waited 11 and a, or one and a half hours for me to come out. Then they left to go to a hotel. The reason I could not come out was their two brothers would not let me come out of the room. This lasted for one and a half to two hours. And there came a knock on the door, and the doctor came in. The doctor gave me some injections, as he had been doing. And this was Dr. Bill Thompson, who was a brethren doctor. Um, as he had been doing, and then said, you are going home because you are sick. I said, I am not sick. 
and asked him if he knew what was going on in the house. He said no, so I said I would not spread evil by telling him. The host, Mr. Gardner, came in with some pills, and I asked where Alan Kerr was, and he said he did not know. He said James III was coming. Soon James III came, and I asked him why he came, because I was supposed to meet him at the London airport. S. McSee or Stanley McCallum had phoned James III and told him something and then met him at Glasgow and told him some more. James III actually left the meetings at Farnham because he was told I was sick, senile, and did not know what I was doing. S. McSee or Stanley McCallum filled up James III with his corruption as he had charged. I left the house, James Alec Gardner's house, after asking, was he right, his wife, and S. McSee. He said yes, but I later found out he meant that S. McSee was right. As I came out to go with James III, there was S. McSee, J.L., which was Jim Lovey, J. Gray, which was Jim Gray, and a brother called Stefano or some such name, and that's Mr. Steedman, we have a letter from later, about 4 a.m. These were the criminals. They were supposed to be having a breaking of bread, but none was held in the house. The charge made by that bastard waterfall that I was in bed with another man's wife is a dastardly lie. If I wanted to sleep with another man's wife, would I go to Aberdeen, costing about $1,000? Brooklyn would be cheaper. Some brethren have shown themselves to be boobs. The dear brethren in Detroit have come to a right decision and withdrew from S. McSee, only to be poisoned by ABP, which is Mr. Parker from New York with the lies he got from Aberdeen. I told him I withdrew from him to Timothy too because he was associating with persons under discipline Aberdeen. Actually, your brother JT Jr. So the interesting thing is, is reading it without all the bombast, just sort of looking at the facts, he really doesn't dispute any of it with the exception of at the end where he says that Mr. Waterfall saying that he was in bed with another man's wife, he says that's a lie, but it was true. I mean, he was. There were there were multiple people all standing in the room who saw them in bed together. So that's those are those two letters, which are really important, especially to read side by side because of, honestly, their similarity. Um, after that, you have... Um, there's a letter of Jim Lovey, who was there in the house that night on August 12th. So that letter from Mr. Gardner and Mr. McCallum was on August, or so it was on July 29th or 30th. The letter from Mr. Taylor was on August 7th. So then on August 12th, Mr. Lovey writes a letter to James III. And he, you know, he wants to just comment on the situation at hand because there was a lot of confusion and and if you speak to brethren who were there you speak to people who were in fellowship at the time or freshly out of it there was just this vacuum of information on the one hand and this huge confusion about what was going on it was just it was just complete chaos from what is, has been related to me and to other people, there was this huge sense of sort of disorientation of what was happening. It was so completely outside the norm of what the Brethren had experienced. Mr. Lovey writes this letter to James, and basically 
corroborates Mr. Gardner in S. McSee's letter and has a number of points that he said just didn't happen the way that J.T. Jr. said they happened, like just factually, like um, the Kurs arrived on a commercial flight into Aberdeen. They didn't arrive on the charter flight. Um, so, so, th so there are things like that in that letter to Mrs. Hindle that just, just weren't factually the case, according to Jim Lovey. Um, Mr. Dr. Thompson, who was the attending doctor, there isn't, so far as I know, a recorded record of what he felt, but a lot of, in terms of like a letter or a report written from him, but a lot of people relate what he said to them about um, Mr. Taylor's condition when he saw him. But um, can you scroll up on this letter? Um, and you can you can read through it on your own time. But Jim Lovey essentially just says, like, a lot of it just doesn't make sense. But he also says things about, you know, that he, he's saying to James III that you, you need to look at this kind of factually. Like, this is what happened. This is what Mr. Taylor Jr. is saying happened that didn't happen. Um, and you need to make make a judgment of this and take action. I mean, obviously, Mr. Levy is wanting some sort of assembly action taken on it. And he, and he writes towards the end, the responsibility, this is Jim Levy writing to James III, the responsibility rests on you regarding the facts placed where they belong. The same moral standards of the house of God applies to every one of us. Um, our God is a righteous judge. In the attempt to negate the witness by using the assemblies to put the witnesses out will never stand. So there was a very strong effort right after Aberdeen to withdraw from a bunch of people who were there um, and saw what was going on. In any event, form your own judgment. And we'll attach links to all these letters in the description of this podcast. Yeah, it's surprising reading through them, like the one from Mr. Gardner and S. McSee, and then this one from Mr. Lovey. They're remarkably uh, uh, kind of deferential to J.T. Jr., remarkably feeling bad that he'd been caught in sort of a breakdown, of a moral breakdown. Um the Brethren in Scotland and Macduff or the other meetings did not withdraw from J.T. Jr. They did not take action. They just said, we need to place this in the hands of the Brethren in New York to deal with. Um, so that's the letter from Mr. Lovey, and that was, uh, I think, on, on August 12th. Then on August 15th, J.T. <laughs> Jr., writes a letter to the Aberdeen police, um, which is in his printed volume of letters. It's to Chief Superintendent Buse of the Aberdeen Police Department. And he is charging in the letter. It's kind of filled with a lot of... Um, the names are redacted in the printed version, but they're pretty easy to figure it out. It's basically... 
Mr. Gardner, Mr. McCallum, Mr. Levy, and uh, Dr. Bill Thompson. Those are and Mr. Steedman. Those are basically the five names that are redacted. Um, and he basically says that he was false, or he was wrongly, or or, or false. So somehow imprisoned that he was like not kidnapped, but he was kept from from leaving. Um, the police in Aberdeen did nothing. Was uh, they felt well? They felt what they felt, but nothing happened. Nothing came of that. But it is an interesting letter. This is now three weeks after the event. Is when you know it took. Mr. Taylor wrote this three weeks later. Um, then in late 1970, but still in the same year. So Mr. Taylor dies in October. Um. Before he, before he dies, Mr. Steedman, Doctor Ted, or Mr. Ted Steedman, wrote a very lengthy letter. Um, he was there in the house with his wife, and he wrote an extremely detailed letter about Mr. Taylor's behavior. Um, and this is again someone who was physically there. He was on site. He witnessed a lot of this going down. But he was not a uh, he was not prominent like the others, and so he was kind of under the, a bit under the radar. But he writes this quite lengthy letter that's extremely detailed about what went down at Aberdeen in the house when they were there, and then his wife uh, signs off on it as well because she was there as well. And I think that's also because it corroborates. There's, there's, there's very little, if any, differentiation between the people who witnessed stuff that happened, um, except for JT Jr.'s version, which is different. Everyone else's is consistent. There's no one else in the house that provided a statement that contradicts them. So it's essentially everyone that was there said, yeah, this is what happened. Uh, Mr. Taylor said, no, slightly different, but similar happened. Um, but again, re read them and form your own decisions. I think it's really hard to believe that multiple people over a span of weeks or months can, can completely corroborate situation and then the the person that's the subject of the question writes their own story and basically says it was not like that kind of speaks for itself interestingly oh and then just after mr taylor died a guy that knew him very well but was not present in Aberdeen, but gathered up a lot of this firsthand stuff, wrote a lengthy paper called If We Walk in the Light, and it's Robert Stott. So that happened. And then also in August of 1970, the Scottish Daily Express wrote this large article on Gigi Jr. And they actually interviewed him in person in New York after he had gone back to New York. So these are also, these are not firsthand things of people in the house at Aberdeen 
But Robert Stott's piece, If We Walk in the Light, which is kind of a, like a booklet, and Cheryl will post that link, um, includes a lot of letters between various people. And then there's this article, which was just up, which this reporter goes to Mr. Taylor's house in Brooklyn in August, and Mrs. Kerr is there. And, you know, Mr. Taylor isn't, like, properly dressed, and he's, you know... I'm embracing Mrs. Kerr, and there's just a lot of behavior that would normally not be re would not be normally require uh, regarded as normal. Um, going on, and then he dies in um, in October. Um, interestingly, he had maintained, and Mrs. Kerr had maintained that they had not been in bed despite the fact that multiple witnesses saw them in bed. However, the next thing I just wanted to point out is in the 1980s, there was a court case. So a, a, a guy and a gentleman in the Netherlands wrote a book about the Brethren, which was not very favorable. And the Brethren took him to court about it. And eventually quashed the publication of it in the Netherlands, and I think it just kind of went away. This guy was a relatively well-known author. But during that court case, there were statements made by Alan and Madeline Kerr about what happened at Aberdeen, which are available, which I believe you have, Cheryl, at your post. And they, you know, so this document shows, you know, Alan Kerr's statement, and then it goes on at the at, towards the, the latter part of it to Madeline Kerr's statement, where she clearly says that she was in bed uh, totally undressed with Mr. Taylor. So I mean that happened. That 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 happened. So then there's other things that kind of later there was a kind of a book written in 1972. Kind of a slightly sensationalized book called Goodbye, Beloved Brethren by Norman Adams. And then there's been a lot of articles written over the years. But I think at the end of the day, one has to weigh it all over in the light of what I understand, you know, statements that are being made inside the Brethren to be. You know, one being um, that there is no evidence. Aberdeen, or another statement that all of Aberdeen was based on a flimsy rumor. But, I mean, that's just not the case. Just not the case. I mean, there was umpteen people there. The, the people involved admit to the things happening that happened. But I think the, the other thing that I believe is being said inside or amongst the brethren currently, is, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happened. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It does not matter what the details are. That the man of God can't fail. Um, and I think that's for every person, particularly those who are Christians, to form their own judgment on, because it, that doesn't stand in the light of Scripture. Um if you do something, you are responsible. So when the when the 
evidence is there, form your own judgment. So those, those are just my thoughts, Cheryl. And I know we've been received some emails from insiders regarding the Aberdeen and wanting more of this. And we decided just to lay out the exact evidence that's happening. And I mean, Bruce has talked about it in his ministry um, regarding Aberdeen and the such stuff, just as you were mentioning. But I do think that it's important to have everything laid out in black and white like this for people to sift through. I'll attach all the links at the end of the um, podcast in the description below and just go through it and sit with your feelings on it. Sit with how it makes you feel because the truth, the truth will talk inside you. The truth will reveal itself within you. Um, I think it's just important that everybody just has all of this available in one spot. And I will attach a link to the recording of the Aberdeen uh, meeting and yeah, enjoy sifting through it. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about the, the whole concept that, um, and I'm veering a little bit off, off, but like the whole concept that it doesn't matter what a certain person that's chosen by God does is just not supported by scripture. If you're a Christian, it's just not, I mean, even King David, when he erred and when he sinned was taken to task and, and by, by the priest and, 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 and there was there was judgment. There were there were there were there were consequences, and so this idea I think is it is that 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 doesn't happen is is just it is ascriptural. It is completely outside the bounds of. But I think what Cheryl said is right. It's just every person needs to look through the things, form your own decisions. There were multiple firsthand firsthand witnesses, firsthand contemporaneous witness statements written saying this is what happened. Um, Mr. Taylor's, Mr. Taylor wrote buku letters around the time of Aberdeen, most of which don't dispute the truth, other than some of it saying he was not in bed, which is clearly, with Mrs. Kerr, which clearly even Mrs. Kerr denies. Um, so I think it's just really important to look at it all kind of unemotionally and just say, like, this is what's there. And in, in the thing is that Aberdeen, the, the the charges were not just about the bedroom thing, but it was also about his behavior in the meeting. Read the meetings preceding Aberdeen. Listen to that meeting in on Saturday night, and inform your decisions. I just think it's it's some people listen to this all and read all this and decide that Mr. Taylor was right. I mean, I came to a different conclusion. <laughs> You know, but I think it's up to each person. Yeah. And I, I do I think it's important that when you come to that conclusion, then you know, with the unrest that is happening within there right now, then you allow that conclusion to then be a magnifying glass or some insight into what's happening right now. That was the whole point of this is that it colors everything else. I mean the thing that is really important to understand about Aberdeen, the crisis on that weekend in July and its fallout, is that it underpins entirely. The, so the Brethren have this these two sort of things that set them apart from mainline Christian churches. One is this extreme understanding of separation from people who have left them. 
So it's not necessarily about people around them, but it's in particular this extreme sort of cutting off and just complete disassociation of people. There's that. And then there is this acceptance of the man of what they call the man of God or the elect vessel or this person, the, the minister of the truth and the recovery that cannot do anything wrong, that reaches through to sinlessness, that can do things that other people can't. And, and those those two beliefs um, are not held in mainland, even the, in mainland Christian churches, even the Catholic church. You know, the Pope is held to account by the College of Cardinals. I mean, it just, this concept that there is a person that is completely sacrosanct, is completely off limits in anything that they and do. And sinless, is, yeah. It, and so those two idiots, this idea, the, this whole thing that happened at Aberdeen underpins all of it. Because if Mr. Taylor was doing what he shouldn't have done, at Aberdeen that cuts the legs out completely from it. If you decide that, yeah, he could go to bed with a 32-year-old, sure. Then you I guess you can you can make the case that then it supports this. But it but this this concept that Aberdeen Aberdeen is the linchpin that builds the edifice today. Yeah. Um, that says this is built around this concept of a man of God that holds complete sway as the personification of the Holy Spirit that does all these things and can do no wrong. Um, so I think it's really important to go over and think about, talk about. Thank you so much, Bradley, for coming on and laying this out for everybody. It was excellent. Yes, question. Feel free to reach me out to me. I'm, I'm sure I'll put all the links on the, on the podcast. I'm available on social media. Anyone can reach out to me at any time. So, thought a lot about it. <laughs> it's very near and dear to your heart and it shows thank you so much take care everyone until next time much love to everyone to share your story or be a guest on the show email info.getalife at proton.me Please remember to like this video, subscribe to get a life and comment.